Acts chapter 21. We'll be reading verses 15 through 26. last few weeks we've been looking at Paul in Caesarea and he has moved on. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. Acts 21 verse 15. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had gone to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, and on the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. After greeting greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, who are among the... And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what, they, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. Lord, as always, your word and its truth is deep and rich, and we want to glean from this some things that may help us this day. Speak to us this morning by your word, by your wisdom, and by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Early New Testament history, as it is recorded in the New Testament, is often understood as a very exciting time for the church, especially after Pentecost. After all, there were very many people getting saved. The church was growing by the thousands almost weekly. The power of the gospel was not only changing lives, it was changing the world. Why wouldn't it have been an exciting time for the Lord and for Christians, for believers? The Apostle Paul is finishing his third missionary journey. He is on his way back to Jerusalem, the church that commissioned him to go. For the past few weeks, we observed a few lessons from Paul's time in Caesarea. Lessons about trusting the Lord fearlessly. The lack of fearless trust in the Lord and his word is a problem for the church 
and for the believer. There are congregations that are afraid to trust the Lord. There are pastors that are afraid to trust the Lord. There are members, individual members, that are afraid to trust the Lord. And we looked at how that was a detriment to believers' walk in faith. This week, I would like to make an observation, perhaps two, from Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. When we looked at Paul's time in Caesarea, that church demonstrated fearful faith. They misunderstood what Paul wanted, or excuse me, they misunderstood what God wanted. They tried to discourage Paul from going to Jerusalem. Of course, they were wrong. Paul insisted on going on to Jerusalem because he was convinced the Holy Spirit told him to go. So he went. The church at Caesarea demonstrated the fearful faith. Paul stood against it. He did not comply to the church's wishes. At Jerusalem, many of the Christians there had converted from Judaism because of the influence they and because of the influence that because of the influence of their Jewish upbringing, they insisted that the law of Moses was still valid, even as they believed in Christ the Messiah, their Redeemer. There was a heavy dependence on keeping the law. And as Paul came to this church, his sending church, Paul was compliant. He was willing to comply with the wishes of the church. Caesarea, no, I'm not going to listen to you. Jerusalem, yeah, okay, that's fine. For the time being, once we get past this passage, we will see how well he complied. The church at Jerusalem appeared to be relying on works righteousness or faith plus works. We're not going to, there's not enough time to get into that this morning. But let's look at the text as we observe these two comparison passages. Acts 21, beginning at verse 15 again. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went, up, went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we, would, we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the, all the elders were present. You know, who was James? A point of interest. We know very little about Nason. One, they spent a night or two there on their journey back to Jerusalem. It describes him as an early believer, an early disciple. Perhaps he was saved at Pentecost. But James, there was another James mentioned earlier in Acts, the James, the brother of John. You remember John, James and John were both described as sons of thunder. John, who wrote the book, the Gospel of John and the Epistles and Revelation, lost his brother to a sword. James was one of the early martyrs for the faith. Or excuse me, that James was one of the early martyrs for the faith. Who is this James? Paul wrote of him. 
in regard to his conversion and call. Remember the Apostle Paul was on his way to Damascus and was stopped by the Lord Jesus himself, saw a blazing light and knocked him off his horse. The Lord blinded Saul was his name then. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes what went on soon after that. When he who had set me apart, talking of the Lord Jesus, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were, who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul went into the desert area to do some prayer and fasting and studying. And then he returned to Damascus, verse 18 of Galatians 1. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. So here is the Lord Jesus' stepbrother, or half-brother, who was now very likely the pastor or one of the pastors at the church at Jerusalem. Galatians 2, verse 9 when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Or James and Cephas and John gave Barnabas and I the authority to go out and spread the gospel to the Gentiles while they stayed with the people of Israel to share the gospel with them. So here we see the church at Jerusalem commissioning the Apostle Paul to begin and execute these missionary journeys, planting churches, spreading the gospel. Verse 19 of our text in Acts 21, after greeting them, he, Paul, related but one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He gave him a testimony meeting. Let's told him everything, how the Lord had blessed, how many people were saved, how many churches were planted. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, I cannot help but think, but Luke leaves some of the conversation out because it seems to jump here. And that's okay. And then they said to him, Paul had shared the testimony of everything that had happened on his missionary journey. And then James and the elders of the church at Jerusalem told him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs.
Paul, we rejoice with you for what the Lord has done through your ministry, but now that you're back at Jerusalem, you need to understand something. There is a problem. The Jewish believers are not going to listen to you. They've heard how you preach. They've heard what you teach. That the Jews who live away from Jerusalem, who don't practice the customs of Moses, are given liberty. They don't have to apply themselves to the laws of Moses. And the Gentiles who you lead to the Lord don't have to even apply themselves to the laws of Moses. That's what they were afraid of. Wasn't necessarily completely true, but that's what they were afraid of. In verse 22, what then is to be done? They were certainly, they will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have heard, been told about you, but you yourself also live in observance of the law of God. The Apostle Paul certainly understood these vows. He was raised a Jew. He even describes himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a teacher, zealous for the law at one time in his life, and then he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. So he understood what these people were dealing with. These people were weaned and nurtured from childhood, in the ways of the law of Moses. Then they found Christ their Savior, and they still kept these customs, and they used them as a way to express their worship to the Lord. In this particular instance, we see that James tells Paul, we have four men in our church who are going through a vow. And and we saw where the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 also participated in a Nazarite vow. Not allowed to eat or drink anything that's produced from the grapevine. You don't eat grapes, you don't drink the fruit. Don't even eat the seeds. Do not touch a dead body. If your great aunt Lucinda passes away, you're not allowed to go to the funeral. Don't cut your hair during this time. It, 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 was, it was a personal kind of a thing. It was kind of like a fast. You are devoting yourself to the Lord. You are focusing on his word and his teaching, spending more time in prayer. And during this time, you're not allowed to do these things. At the end of this time, you bring a burnt offering to the Lord, a male lamb. You also bring a sin offering to the Lord, a ewe lamb. You also bring a ram as an offering to the Lord, you were to bring grain offerings and drink offerings, and then you get to cut your hair and go through a purification ritual as well. James said there are four church members. We would like you to join them, finish the time of the vow with them, demonstrate to the church that you are not against the tradition of Moses. And Paul was compliant to this. But he was not being hypocritical. Thus, all who know 
that there is nothing that all will know, that there is nothing in what they have told us have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, here's the point I would like to make as comparison. Paul is compliant here. He was not compliant with the church at Caesarea. Is he being a hypocrite? Is he being inconsistent? No, he is not. While on his journeys... First thing we need to consider, while on his missionary journeys, Paul was the teacher. He was the pastor. He was the shepherd. He represented church authority to the people whom he led to the Lord and to the churches he planted. He was the one in authority. At Jerusalem, Paul was under authority of the church. They were the sending church that had authorized him to go. They commission him to do mission work. So he is being compliant to them. He is recognizing the authority he was under. Now, it does not become inconsistent with the word of God at all. Jewish cultures and traditions were still important to Paul. That was how he was raised. As a way of illustration... I, maybe like many of you, I was raised on the King James Version Bible only. And it happened to be the Schofield Reference Bible. And I think I've mentioned this before. In our churches growing up, whenever everybody had the same Bible. The preacher's reading from his Bible and he turns his page and you can hear every page in the sanctuary turning with him talking about everybody being on the same page, we were literally on the same page. But since I've grown, I've been introduced to the New American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, and I've got to be honest with you, I still prefer the King James. for the sake of the people I've opted for something easier something a little more of the everyday language the ESV and even then I'm still finding things that I would disagree with so I have to go back to the original language ha ha I'm right the apostle Paul was the same way He was raised a certain way. He found redemption in Christ Jesus. He found freedom and liberty. But he still understood those whom he witnessed to, where they were coming from. He was a Jew. He was a Roman citizen. He was well educated. He was equipped and prepared to do the ministry that only he could do, to reach as many people as possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 The Apostle Paul wrote, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became a Jew. That's what we're seeing here. But that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law 
toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Very quickly, why is this important? There is a term I like to use sometimes. It's called dynamic tension. There is always dynamic tension present in every single relationship. There's a dynamic tension in every social relationship, in every marital relationship, in every friendship, in every work-related relationship. In every relationship, the posture you assume is always changing. It's always adjusting. If someone is angry with you, you're going to adjust your posture emotionally and mentally. If someone is happy with you, you're going to adjust your posture. That's an open simplification of it. But there was a dynamic tension going on with Paul and the believers at Caesarea. He was not complying to what they wanted him to do. He knew they were wrong. But do you remember? The Apostle Paul said, Why are you breaking my heart? And it kind of makes me wonder. They didn't want him to leave, but he knew he had to go. Was his heart breaking because of that? Or they didn't believe what he was saying. And that in and of itself was breaking his heart. I really wonder, because being a pastor and knowing so many pastors over the last 30 years, the pastor's heart will break. A pastor's heart will endure much because people just don't listen. There is dynamic tension at the church at Jerusalem where Paul was compliant because he recognized their authority over him. Very quickly, what about Christians in the modern church? There exists dynamic tension here as well. First of all, in in understanding what's going on with this dynamic tension, there is always an ultimate authority to whom we all must be submissive. We saw where the Apostle Paul was exercising authority, and we saw where he was bowing to authority. There is always an ultimate authority to whom... I remember when I typed this out in Word, it underlooked whom, so you need to change this to which. But I'm talking about a whom. There is an ultimate authority to whom we all must be submissive. Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There is our authority. Isaiah 55, 11 so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in that which 
I sin it. Are we compliant to the authority of the word of God in our lives? Jeremiah 23, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Are we compliant to the authority of the word in our lives? Christ and his word, he is described as the living word, even described himself as a living word, is the first and last authority in the believer's life. And we take that so casually. I've heard many times responses to some of the things I've said, some of the things I've taught, and I, it, there's, it just kind of, it's kind of like getting briars in my legs when I walk through the bushes. Just sharp pointed little annoyances. Well, preacher, that's your opinion. If you have a, I'm not saying you do, that's for you to determine and the Lord to determine. If you, I don't want to be boasting here. If you have a pastor who is faithful to the word of God, you need to pay attention to what's being said, to what's being taught. Because it's, it's not opinion. He is trying to transfer to you the truth and the word of God, which is power and authority in your life. A good pastor is a good shepherd, and he wants to see your life blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time you disobey the word of God, you're going to be chastised. And that's always heartbreaking. And I've seen more people offended by the word and just fade off into the darkness. And that is heartbreaking. The word of God is authority. The law of God is authority. If we, by way of illustration, let's just talk briefly about the law. Most of us in modern Christianity consider that the Ten Commandments. But in Old Testament Israel, they took those Ten Commandments and they built a commentary from them. There were 680 commandments that they derived from that. I've forgotten the numbers. Over half of them were things you do not do, and the other rest of them were things that you should do. Can you imagine applying your life to 680 commandments which were derived from the ten that Moses shared with Israel? Let's just look at the ten. If I asked you this morning, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? I believe everyone in this room would say, yes, I do. They are important. We should live by them. Now, I'm not saying, thus saith, I'm just challenging your heart and your mind. What about the Fourth Commandment? Do you even remember what it is? If we consider Sunday the Christian Sabbath, then remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. How many of you are going out for dinner after church today? What's wrong with that? Well, you're, you're requiring someone else to work for you. 
that was forbidden in Old Testament days. Is the law same today as it was then? I just challenge you to think about this. What about the seventh commandment? Do you remember what that is? It's one of the things we consider one of the biggies. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It not only applies to adultery, it also applies to fornication and every kind of sexual perversion, even pornography, even looking, even, and Matthew 5 through 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, you even look at someone with lust. You've broken the commandment. How many of us struggle with that? But we still look at the law of God so casually. And we shouldn't. How much authority does it hold over our lives? There is always an ultimate authority to whom we all must be submissive. And that is the word of God and our Lord Jesus. Now, assuming that the church, that a church or any church has a faithful pastor, this dynamic tension will still be present between the pastor and the congregation. Some will not agree with the preacher. If he's a faithful preacher, why wouldn't they believe him? Sometimes the people of God bring upon themselves the worst problems just because they don't listen to what their pastor teaches or what the Word of God says. I'm not even going into false prophets. We don't have time of that today. Sometimes preachers lead their people away. That's another great big ugly can of snakes. Or should I say pit of snakes. People are very often, like the church at Caesarea, afraid to trust the word of God fearlessly because the word of God sometimes calls us to do difficult things. And they refuse to repent of their fear. I have been personally involved with a church before I came here. They burned through, if memory serves me right, They burned through eight pastors in 11 years. And they couldn't understand why they couldn't find a pastor who would stay. You take the equation. You have a congregation. You have a faithful pastor or faithful pastors. And you're trying to get some results. You're not getting a result, so you change one of those, one part of that equation, but they keep changing the wrong part. What's the common denominator? The one thing that never changed was the congregation. They would not repent. They would not listen. They would not obey the word of God. They always still got the same results. We look at the church at Caesarea and we look at the church at Jerusalem. We look at the work of Paul. He exercised authority over the church at Caesarea They didn't want to go along with him. We looked at Paul's submission to the authority of the church at Jerusalem. And there were still some very powerful blessings there. You go back a a little bit further into Acts and look at the church at Ephesus, one of Paul's strongest churches that he was involved with. 
He stayed with them on his way back perhaps the longest time, at least the longest time that Luke recorded. Because he had so much to share with them. And they were so receptive to the word of God. And yet there was very likely some problems there as well. Because if you remember reading in Revelation, Ephesus was one of the seven churches the Lord Jesus wrote to. You have lost your first love. And that's what God has called us all to do. To love him and to love his word. Problems are still going to persist in the church as long as people keep doubting God's word and keep living in fear before his word and even living in fear and refusing to repent before his law. Problems will continue to persist in, the, in any church when people of God do not submit and trust the word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we look closely at your word and its power and its help. And we ask, Lord, that you might hear our pleas for repentance. May we turn from our fear and our doubt. May we turn from our sinful habits. May we submit ourselves to your authority and your authority alone that we may be blessed by your word and its truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we take a moment to approach